Welcome to Counterspin, your weekly look behind the headlines. I'm Janine Jackson. This week on Counterspin, coronavirus is above all a health story, of course, but healthcare plays out within societies with economic structures and policies that have a lot to do with whether people get sick and whether they get care and where overall impacts are felt. We'll talk with Josh Bivens, Research Director at Economic Policy Institute, about what policy changes might mitigate the disruptive impact of coronavirus and better prepare us for the future. Also on the show, economics might not be the most meaningful lens through which to look at U.S. warmongering. But Pentagon spending is a keyhole to the bigger crisis. A defense department that, in cahoots with military contractors, takes trillions of public dollars for endless war making, with no meaningful check or even oversight. We'll talk about that with Mandy Smithberger, director of the Center for Defense Information at the Project on Government Oversight. Economic impacts of life-saving and warmongering today on Counterspin. But first, we'll take a look back at some recent press. When elite U.S. media were vigorously endorsing the coup in Bolivia, Exhibit A were claims of fraud from the Organization for American States around the October election that re-elected President Evo Morales. A New York Times editorial referred to the highly fishy vote on October 20th, linking that phrase to one of its own articles that cited the withering assessment of the election's integrity from the OAS. The Washington Post went further, claiming that Bolivia's electoral tribunal had moved to falsify election results and stating boldly, without evidence, that a majority of Bolivians wanted Morales to leave office. In real time, the Center for Economic and Policy Research called foul on the OAS's fraud analysis. It wasn't terribly hard. The OAS discounted the fact that precincts reporting early can be different than those that report late. But that callout was widely ignored. So the Center for Economic and Policy Research asked researchers at the MIT Election Data and Science Lab to see if they could corroborate that analysis. And lo and behold, MIT researchers now say there is not any statistical evidence of fraud and that the OAS's statistical analysis and conclusions would appear deeply flawed. And now here comes the Washington Post who a few months back ran the editorial, Bolivia is in danger of slipping into anarchy, it's Evo Morales' fault, now publishing that MIT assessment as analysis. And here's Reuters, who, as Joe Emmersberger notes for FAIR.org, ran dozens of stories regurgitating the OAS claim without noting any challenges to it, also reporting that assessment. So journalistically, the attitude appears to be, okay, we said a thing and it turned out to be unsupported, whatever, here's another thing. But the thing is, the OAS's disparagement of the Bolivian election, pumped up unquestioningly by influential U.S. media, contributed mightily to violent protests that, 
Combined with the actions of Bolivia's military and police, forced Morales to resign and flee the country. Dozens of people have been killed protesting the ensuing dictatorship, which openly says they'll arrest Morales if he returns to Bolivia. So a serious press corps would examine their own biases that led them to insufficiently interrogate the OAS line and actually engage with vigor the political reality of Bolivians whose interests they were claiming to be concerned with. But let's not hold our breath. And Michael Bloomberg's presidential candidacy is a thing of the past, but elections are about ideas as much as anything. And Bloomberg's minute in the spotlight unearthed one idea that, in the words of economist Dean Baker, shows that pernicious right-wing nonsense never dies, no matter how many times it is shown to be wrong. In this case, it's the useful right-wing fable that the Great Recession was caused because lenders were forced to give mortgages to people of color who couldn't pay them back. Well, listeners may know that video clips surfaced of Michael Bloomberg giving this line in a 2008 speech. That might have been a chance for media to debunk, again, the disparaging myth. Instead, the New York Times gave space to right-wing journalist Christopher Caldwell to say that Bloomberg was right. The line, Dean Baker explains, is that banks were forced against their better judgment to make black people homeowners by the 70s Community Reinvestment Act that required banks to make loans in the neighborhoods where they took deposits. It was a response to redlining, wherein banks would open branches in black and brown neighborhoods, but then all the loans would go to predominantly white neighborhoods. The other boogeyman is the quasi-governmental Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, who, were told, encouraged the issuing of bad mortgages. But as Baker points out in truthout.org, the worst loans were issued by banks not covered by the CRA, like AmeriQuest and New Century, who got their money by selling bonds on Wall Street. In terms of buying subprime loans, Fannie and Freddie were losing market share to investment banks like Goldman Sachs and Morgan Stanley. For a simple reason, mortgage banks issued bad mortgages and investment banks securitized them in mortgage bank securities to make money, not to comport with government regulation. It might be useful to remember it differently, of course. The financial crisis and the housing bubble that preceded it represent risks that, as Baker explains, were easy to see for those paying attention, but the so-called experts dropped the ball at enormous cost to tens of millions of people. That some now want to blame people of color and those who sought to help them is a tired surprise. A thoroughly debunked idea that has to be denounced as such when and where it occurs, even if that's in the course of a distracting presidential election. You're listening to Counterspin, brought to you each week by the Media Watch Group Fair. After some breathless and some racist coverage on coronavirus and the respiratory illness COVID-19, U.S. media did get around to acknowledging that, for example, many people can't 
follow the critical recommendation to stay home from work if they're ill. As many as a quarter of U.S. workers don't have any paid sick days. Consideration of the various factors affecting the potential spread of coronavirus and our societal response is not politicizing the issue. Public health is inherently political. It's just a matter of how thoughtful and transparent we are. Here to help us look at some things to consider is Josh Bivens. He's research director at the Economic Policy Institute and author of Failure by Design, the story behind America's broken economy and Everybody Wins Except for Most of Us, what economics really teaches about globalization. He joins us by phone from Washington, D.C. Welcome to Counterspin, Josh Bivens. Thanks for having me. Well, a virus that looks set to affect a great number of people, though not necessarily, thankfully, to kill a great many, and the uncertainty and even panic that surround that, how do you even start to think about the economic impacts of that? I mean, people not going to work, okay, I can see that, but what do you even look at if you're trying to think about how something like this affects the economic life of a country? Yeah, it's a really good question because I would say often there's been a lot of talk over the past year about what are we going to do when the next recession comes, and that's a pretty straightforward thing. Recessions tend to happen because something makes people stop spending money, either you know households, businesses, governments, and so they pull back their spending, the economy starts to slow down, and you basically can just have the government either give them money to spend more or spend it directly. It's all very straightforward. Recession potentially caused by an epidemic is is a little different because we can give people more money, but a lot of the spending cutbacks that you might see as a result of the epidemic isn't going to happen because people don't have income. It's because they don't want to be around other people. They don't want to go to a restaurant, not because they don't have the income to go to the restaurant, but because they don't want to be around other people. Same thing for malls, for grocery stores. And so I think it's it's going to be a little bit harder to fill in the hole caused by the cutback in spending that could happen if this really becomes widespread. I think you still do some of the traditional things you do to fight recessions, just transfer lots of resources to low and moderate income people, just trying to like erect a firewall around the sectors that will be hit directly, like sort of the social consumption as people pull back. But then I think you just have to start thinking about things that combine economic and public health measures. And so, you know, you could have the example of mandating temporary paid sick leave to every worker in the United States for the next six months. That hits the economic effect, but also, you know, will reinforce the the public health advice. And so you look for things that combine the two like that. That makes a lot of sense. Well, I was going to say in your recent article, you lay out some considerations for policymakers for both the short term and then some longer term things that might maybe could improve our response to epidemics. Now, you talked about that sick leave right now. That seems like an immediate impactful thing that could be done. Are, Are there other things that could be done in the short term to address some of the impacts? I think one thing that could happen is you could imagine just a blanket statement by the government that all coronavirus-related testing and treatment will be picked up by the government. It strikes me that an epidemic like this, the absolute worst thing is people who don't get tested or don't get treated because they're worried about cost. But that's a reality of life in America. Lots of people forego health care because they think it's going to be too expensive. And the government actually has the ability in the very short run to say anything that is a coronavirus test or treatment will be picked up by the Medicare program. I think that's doable. 
I think it would reinforce the public health aspect, and it would also keep money in people's pockets because they wouldn't have to shell out the copays and things like that for having the illness treated. And as you say, they'd be more willing or able to do it, which, of course, is, is, is critical. I wonder, do you have any thoughts on the other piece of that? Because what you're saying sort of doesn't sound like the American way in some ways. You know, we think, uh, you know, the first past the post with a vaccine or a drug ought to, ought to get a monopoly and make a lot of money. Do you have any thoughts on that patent ball of wax as it relates here? Yes, I would say in the long run, generally, I think our our system where we just reward pharmaceutical companies with incredibly profitable patents for incredibly long periods of time is just a disaster, not not just for the pocketbooks of people who have to pay for drugs, but it's not even a very good innovation system. And so the most direct way to deal with that in some sense is just having more and more people under public health insurance programs in the U.S., both Medicaid and Medicare, and expand those and then have the government really use its bargaining leverage against pharmaceutical companies to keep price gouging from happening. I feel like people understand that in the short run, in the sense of the coronavirus vaccine, it would be unfair to allow drug companies to really gouge on this. And then hopefully that realization is like, but why should they ever be allowed to? So I I think this would be a good gateway to getting people used to the idea that we have a really flawed drug production and distribution system, and probably we should change it. A teachable moment, if you will. Well, we talked about paid sick leave, about government covering um, medications and responses related to coronavirus. Clearly, workplace protections, labor standards are key. When you look at the longer term in terms of building resiliency or responsiveness to epidemics, what are some of the longer term, bigger picture things you think about? One of them is absolutely making mandated paid sick leave a permanent feature of the U.S. economy. It has long been said that, you know, it's not just good for individual workers. It actually is good for public health. There's actually been a recent study that showed that states that have mandated paid sick leave saw a 40% drop in flu transmission cases. And so I think the public health benefits are really large. You know, some states have moved ahead. If you look at the share of workers covered by paid sick leave in the United States, there is a huge difference between, say, the Pacific coast region of the U.S. versus like the South. It's basically 90% versus 60% who have some access. And so we should get that all the way across the finish line and mandate it for everybody. After paid sick leave, I think the big thing is we need to stop just gutting the sort of non-defense discretionary part of the federal budget. That is the part of the budget that funds things like NIH and CDC, as well as lots of other incredibly valuable public investments. It has shrunk to an almost historically low share. It's set to shrink even more. It's just, you know, penny-wise, pound-foolish kind of budget cutting, and we really need to beef up our public institutions that provide public health, as well as education and other things, but the public health is the most salient right now. Well, finally, in covering all of the various aspects of this unfolding situation, we hope that media will balance urgency and education, that they'll be scrupulous in sourcing and not spread unfounded rumors. Do you have any thoughts of what might be useful for journalists to be looking at or thinking about or, or on the other hand, what kinds of stories you'd like not to see um, going forward? On the public health side, I am probably not the expert there, but I'm, I'm more a consumer. And so, yeah, I just want good information in any way. On the economic side, I would really like good reporting on 
what sounds like it's actually specific and responsive to the crisis in front of us versus what is just packaging long-held ideological preferences and trying to exploit the, the current moment. And so the classic example will be there will be Republican claims that they have a response to the coronavirus economic fallout by cutting income taxes. Income taxes are generally just not a very big burden at all for low and moderate income people. So if you're actually trying to help them and keep the economy afloat during any epidemic-induced shock, that's a terrible way to go. It's not a serious response. It's just something that Republicans in Congress always want to do. So I think that reporting that really you know, queries, is this a real response to the current condition or is this just smuggling in long-held ideological preferences? That's what I'd like to see. We've been speaking with Josh Bivens. He's research director at the Economic Policy Institute. You can find their work online at epi.org. Josh Bivens, thank you so much for joining us this week on Counterspin. Thanks for having me. Over the course of 10 debates, Sarah Lazar reports for In These Times, Democratic presidential candidates were asked 21 questions about how they would pay for proposed agenda items like Medicare for All, climate mitigation, and free college, and zero questions about how they would pay for war. What is it that drives corporate media to credit as merely reasonable demands for a thorough accounting of the relative pennies spent on, for instance, food stamps for low-income families, while literal billions are blithely signed over to the Pentagon with hardly a blink. And any who challenge that spending are vilified as unconcerned about national security or simply left out of the conversation. We even hear talk of underfunding of what we know to be the planet's largest war-making power by far. It's hard to have an informed debate when the information you'd need to have it is studiously hidden from view. Mandy Smithberger is the director of the Center for Defense Information at the Project on Government Oversight. She joins us now by phone from Washington, D.C. Welcome to Counterspin, Mandy Smithberger. Thank you so much for having me. Untethered, I guess, is the word that comes to mind for Pentagon spending. It's not just the mind-boggling amount of money. It's the opacity about what happens to it. But let's start with the mind-boggling money, uh, which your recent article breaks down, keeping in mind, as you do, that the costs, the financial costs of war are much more than even what we see in the Pentagon budget. But get us lay people situated, if you would, in these, in these big numbers. What are we talking about? Yeah, it is a really mind-boggling number. Even when you look at what we consider to be the traditional Pentagon budget, I think it's hard for any of us to picture what $740 billion looks like. Even And within that account, only $69 billion of that is for quote-unquote war spending, even though as you dig into those numbers, you find out that, oh, a lot of this is for enduring requirements or for sustaining weapon systems. And it's been used by the Department of Defense as a mechanism for continuing to increase their budget on already pretty high caps on their spending. And then the numbers grow even larger when you look at how much we spend on nuclear weapons. So that's another $27.6 billion. There's the cost of intelligence, that's $85 billion. Obviously, when people come home from war, we need to pay for the care of our veterans, so that's another $239 billion. And you look at the 
what we pay for Homeland Security, the interest on the debt for all of the spending, and it all comes to $1.2 trillion. Trillion. That's amazing. And, you know, for purposes of scale, like when you stand a person next to a whale, uh, in 2008, the U.N. said that $30 billion a year could end hunger on the planet. Um, Well, I think also when we think about Pentagon money, besides just the scale of it, a lot of what comes to mind is is waste. You know, a lot of us remember that 600-some-dollar toilet seat and, you know, cost overruns. And that does sort of lead into accountability. But I wonder if I could just ask you, that waste is still very much a thing, too. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, now we have the $10,000 toilet seat. So uh, they've kept up with inflation. We're still seeing that kind of waste. We have weapon systems like the F-35 that are going to cost us $1.5 trillion over the lifetime of that program. We've had a number of IT systems that have cost billions of dollars with really nothing to show for it. And it's a bipartisan problem with people on both sides of the aisle just wanting to throw more money at these problems and not really hold anyone accountable. I think what's most troubling to me about that is that it doesn't help our men and women in uniform if they have weapon systems that aren't safe, that aren't going to be effective. So not having accountability in this space has led to horrific disasters, and it's really not doing a service to anyone but defense contractors to give them free reign over our taxpayer dollars. Well, one of the things that you spell out very clearly in the work that you've done on this, including for TomDispatch.com, is that there's this incentive to build new things, even when older things might work better. You know, because it's such a a pork barrel thing, you want to build a new shiny machine, even if that's not the one that is necessarily going to protect service people or function in a way that, that we need. So let's talk about what is behind that lack of accountability. It's absolutely bipartisan. I think of it as almost like murder on the Orient Express. You know, everybody did it, you know, so it can be hard to trace it back, you know, to one smoke-filled room. And I I think it was uh, Bill Hartung who introduced me to the idea of spreading weapons building among various states, and then you've got buy-in from lots of Congress members, right? Absolutely. Yeah, we referred to that. Uh, Chuck Spinney came up with the idea of politically engineering a program so it would be too big to fail. So you see that problem through spreading out of jobs, through campaign contributions. Something else that we are particularly concerned about is the revolving door that occurs between Pentagon officials and defense contractors and congressional staff. We did an investigation, and we found that for the top 20 contractors, 90% of the former officials that they were hiring, you know, it wasn't for their expertise. It was for influence peddling. So they were trying to use not what they know but who they know to increase their company's profits. I want to talk about that revolving door some more, particularly as it involves media. But I did want to pick up on one thing that I found really interesting, because I'd heard this story of, okay, you want to build a a plane, you have the engine made in one state, and you have, you know, the body made in another state, and then you have that support because it's jobs in these various states. But one of the things that you reveal is that it's that's not even appeasing the public. The public are not even in favor of that kind of political engineering, right? Absolutely. So there's been recent polling showing that the public really wants 
our money to be spent for what we need for our national security, but not for this kind of crony capitalism of spreading out these contracts so that there isn't any kind of accountability. So I think it's one of the many areas where you have kind of a corrupt Washington way of thinking that's not really reflecting what the public wants our democracy to reflect. Yeah, and it's sort of written off as, well, they're appeasing their constituents, but it turns out they aren't even doing that. Well, speaking of that revolving door, I'm sure you remember, and listeners may remember, back in 2008, David Barstow at the New York Times broke a story about how the Pentagon was sending this coterie of retired generals out to act as message force multipliers in support of the Iraq war. And they got special briefings with the Pentagon, they got talking points, and then they would go on national TV and deliver information, even information that they themselves suspected was false or was exaggerated. I mean, that revolving door... It's not just the cronyism between defense contractors and defense policymakers. It affects the public's ability to know as well. Oh, absolutely. It's horrific propaganda when you don't have transparency about those kinds of connections. And we've had debates about the strike in Iran, debates about Syria. Over and over, the pundits that are put on television have connections to defense contractors, and they see their stocks going up as there's talk about, will America go to war again? You know that every time the Pentagon budget comes up, first of all, it is a bipartisan thing. People just, so, you know, a billion here, a billion there. It's kind of almost a one-day story. You know, it happens and it goes through. But, you know, there are complaints, and it seems that every time there's a budget, the Pentagon says there's going to be reforms. They're going to do some things differently. But there's a reason to to question both what they put forward as reforms, and then I'd also like to ask you, what would real reform look like? So, unfortunately, a lot of the reforms that we're seeing be put forward would actually reduce oversight and accountability, and that tends to be the convenient place to make cuts. So, well, we don't need so many auditors to have (laughs) people testing these systems to see if they work. I mean, that's overhead. Right. But really, those are key accountability tools. So a lot of the kinds of real reforms that you'd want to see is how do you increase competition? Also, all starts with cutting the budget. There's not going to be real accountability and better management unless the Pentagon understands that they don't have limitless resources and that they have to be good stewards of what they receive. And we need to clean up our ethics laws so we don't have this revolving door, that we need to have regular contract audits and more transparency over what's happening at the Department of Defense generally. My colleague Jason Palladino did an investigation just showing all the ways that this administration, like everyone before, it has increased secrecy. And that's really to the public's detriment. And I guess a role for journalists, investigative journalists as well. Absolutely. We've been speaking with Mandy Smithberger. She is director of the Center for Defense Information at the Project on Government Oversight, work including her recent article, Creating a National Insecurity State, Spending More, Seeing Less, can be found as well as on pogo.org, on tomdispatch.com and thenation.com. Mandy Smithberger, thank you so much for joining us this week on Counterspin. Thank you so much for having me. And that's it for Counterspin for this week. Counterspin is produced by FAIR, the National Media Watch Group based in New York. If you missed part of today's show or you'd like to hear previous shows, you can find them on FAIR's website, fair.org. The show's engineered by Erica Rosado. I'm Janine Jackson. 
Thanks for listening to Counterspin. 